I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Jenny Molin is a writer, actor, Instagram personality, and New York Times bestselling author of the essay collections, I Like You Just the Way I Am, and Live Fast, Die Hot. Her digital series, I Like You Just the Way I Am, which she wrote and in which she stars, currently streams on ABC Digital. Heralded by the Huffington Post as one of the funniest women on both Twitter and Instagram and named one of the five to follow by T Magazine, Jenny wrote a standing column for Parents Magazine and has contributed to Cosmopolitan, Glamour, New York, L.com, Grubhub, and Wake Up Call with Katie Couric. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to ask you a question. Like, hypothetically, do you know how difficult it is to, say, prep for a podcast interview while sort of watching but not fully watching a digital series episode where a woman is snooping on her husband's ex with a drone and it inadvertently (laughs) strikes her in the head? Can you appreciate that level of cognitive dissonance when you're trying to prep for an interview? (laughs) Oh my God. I love that you were watching that. That is so so funny. funny. I mean, I snorted. (laughs) So good. With that in mind, I'm talking about your digital series that came from, I like you just the way I am your memoir. Yes. When you were converting that memoir to this other medium, yes, can see how going from fiction to TV or movie, it's your memoir, it's your story. How does that work? Yeah, it was tricky, but you know, I came from film and TV. That was where I sort of started writing. So it actually gave me so much more freedom. Things that I wish had happened with, for instance, my husband's ex, you know, I didn't have to like go chasing the story, which I tend to do. I was the master of my own universe. So that was amazing. (laughs) I've traveled to Peru. I've been in the mountains of Morocco chasing stories. And it was nice to just be able to sit in my living room and write whatever I wanted. How does it feel to be playing you in the series? You know, I love that because As a writer, you have an idea. You can hear the voice in your head. And it was so great to be able to do it because I'm like, no, this is exactly how it needs to look and sound. And I just, you know, the control freak in me loved every moment of it because I, you know, could just micromanage the shit out of it. Jason, it drove him crazy. He's like, I'm an actor. Stop giving me line reads. And I said, no, (laughs) this is how you said it in my head. And this is how I want you to say it here. (laughs) It's my story. I'm telling my story. story, dude. Very important question about the series. I wanted to know about the sweet fluffy dog. Is it yours? Oh my gosh. So no, my dog unfortunately had passed away by the time we went to shoot. And it was sort of, I don't know, one of just like the greatest moments of my life, having to do a casting call for my deceased poodle, Mr. Teats. So it was a full-blown casting couch situation because I did molest each of the contenders when they came in. And this dog, I just couldn't resist. Well, he's so good. He was I mean, great. He's like kind of sits there. Right? I don't know. It was one of mine. They'd be barking or jumping on the couch. Or and weirdly, anything. I've worked with a lot of dogs. I don't know why. I've been bitten by dog actors before. And this dog was actually really a class act. <laughs> well, it's a sweet little dog. How do you switch gears from full form memoir to screenwriting when you're adapting to the screen? So I wrote the pilot for I Like You Just the Way I Am. And the pilot was actually an episode that I didn't air just because it was a little risque, but I loved it. 
it. It was about Jason and I hiring this prostitute. Hilarious episode, <laughs> but that was the pilot. And they're like, listen, this is a little edgy for network, but would you do it digitally? I was thrilled to be able to do it at all. So of course I said yes. And that wasn't as tricky because a short story is just a standalone episode. So that was easy to be able to use each of my short stories or chapters rather and make them into an episode. The harder thing and the biggest challenge was when I had to take my second book, which was also a memoir and try to make that into a three act structured film. And that was very difficult. And one of the harder jobs I've ever had. I wrote that for Warner Brothers and the final product, it was no longer the book. There were elements, but it really turned into more like, what about Bob? But like picture, (laughs) I've moved my mom back into my house, trapping her there to make her like reparent me because I never felt like she was like maternal enough when I was a child. So that's like what it turned into. Very fun, but not the second book. In the introduction of that second book, Live Fast, Die Hot, you reference how the 1988 Molly Ringwald movie for Keeps scared you about having children. But now you have two children, actually three books, two children, one digital series, a screenplay, and now a cookbook coming. So how do you find the time or the energy to do all of this? I honestly don't know. I keep telling Jason, I bit off more than I can chew. And he's like, well, this is what you wanted, you know? And I said, but no, when I was like a struggling actor in LA, you just throw a bunch of things into the fire because nothing usually takes. So to have two books coming out three months apart is just something that I never really expected, nor did I ever anticipate happening in my lifetime. I'm just so used to rejection and like hearing no, and (laughs) that I'm always just plugging away with something new. And this is the kind of the first time ever that like, I guess all things are sort of a go. It's been a struggle. (laughs) It's been a real struggle. What is it? Happy accident or something like that? Yes. Those are happy problems, right? Yes. But Jason's like, you're a buzzkill. You should be happy right now. And I'm like, I'm losing I'm so stressed out. You brought up living in New York now. You guys had moved from LA. What made you want to move from LA to New York? I talk about that in a second of the book. So the reason I moved here was I think I was in the throes of postpartum. And I felt so vulnerable in the world. And I was so scared to have a baby. And I didn't know. I, I still look around sometimes like, when are the adults showing up? You know, like, I'm in charge. What do you mean? Like, uh, I can't be in charge. I'm the kid. Who put me in charge? (laughs) Right? It's so freaky sometimes. So when I first had Sid, I was tripping balls. We had just moved into this new house in LA and I became convinced that the house was haunted. Now it's hard to say how much of that was, I don't know, my postpartum and how much was reality. But I did speak to a psychic that told me that the house was haunted with a ghost dog, but he had an old man partner. And I said to her, I'm fine if the dog stays, but the old man must go. He needs to be out of here. And she's like, no, he wants to stay. He wants to teach Sid historical facts. And then like, I could never sleep there again. I was tripping. Jason was doing Heidi Chronicles in New York at the time. So we had this Mm -hmm. small place in New York because he had been on Orange is the New Black. So we had a a tiny apartment in Tribeca and we decided, okay, fine. We're going to move there for six months while Jason does this play. The baby was only six months old. So we move here and instantly I just felt like all of my problems had been ameliorated. I was living on a giant cruise ship where like there were people everywhere. I could descend downstairs to like a night of dinner and dancing. I could be like my old self, a woman like without children who could like work my ass off all day. But then I could go back upstairs and be a mom and take care of him and order anything I wanted, would just show up at my door. It felt ideal. So I don't know. I sort of came up with this plot to get rid of that other house. And I said, 
to myself, if I can convince Jason that I want to live in New York permanently, I know I could get his head around selling that house because he had just put in a pizza oven. We had done a bunch of renovations. Oh, gosh. And in my yeah. mind, I'm like, I'll never live there. I'll never sleep there ever again. So his parents live in Jersey. And I just got on this whole campaign about we should live in New York. And of course, he was obsessed with the idea because his mom and dad are 15 minutes away. So he's like, okay, okay, let's do it. And I kept saying to my sister who lives in LA, I said, don't worry, I'll be back. I'm going to get back to LA. I just have to go through this first. Like, let me just get out of that house. And then eventually I'll make my way back. Well, that was seven years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm still here. So something went awry. I just don't know what. Honestly, I couldn't picture myself raising kids in LA. I'm happy in New York. Just wasn't exactly a planned uh, <laughs> Another happy accident. <laughs> a happy accident. New York is just such a special place. It's so oh, true. It's such a cool place. There's just so much happening. Yeah, especially like a person that I'm in a relationship. Oh yeah, with publishing, it's amazing. Let's talk about your next book, City of Likes. I started writing this book like three and a half, four years ago. And the reason I wanted to write a novel was because I knew that the story that I had to tell, I couldn't tell as a memoir. I wouldn't have to leave town. (laughs) There's just like too many things about it. In a lot of ways, it's more revealing than even the memoirs are. But I knew it was a story I had to tell because I found myself in this world where I was doing a lot of this influencer stuff. And I was Mm -hmm. seeing behind the curtain and I looked at a bunch of my peers and contemporaries and I saw how they almost sort of used the kids in a way to, you know, further their own brands. And I don't know, it just, it disturbed me. There was like a dark underbelly to it and I didn't see anybody talking about it. And I'm reading these captions and looking at these pictures and I'm just getting enraged in my bed at night, covered in zit cream, sitting in front of the TV. And I'm like, (laughs) why is nobody seeing this? How are the comments also positive when there's like so much dark twisted shit going on here? (laughs) And that just drove me insane. And I said, Jason, I have to write a book. And like my whole thesis was like, if you are so busy curating your online profile and motherhood, for strangers, how present are you in your real life for your own kids? So that was kind of the impetus that threw me into this novel land. Tell us a little bit about the main character. So the main character is Maddie and she's a new mom that's moved to New York. She's just had her second child. She's a bit fragile and a little insecure and just doesn't really have a sense of herself anymore. She's kind of lost herself in the kids. Her husband's busy working. They have some means, but they aren't in this New York stratosphere of wealth by any means. And she comes to New York thinking that she wants to start working again, wants to sort of reclaim her own identity a little bit but she doesn't know how to kind of go about it. And she finds herself sort of caught up or, you know, falls into the hands of this huge mommy blogger influencer woman. It really gets into these toxic female relationships and Mm -hmm. just like, you know, women in general, the dance that is having a female friend and how we do sort of date each other. I really wanted to talk about how there is no greater high than having a light shined on you by a narcissist. (laughs) Like you feel so seen and they can prop you up so high and it's a drug, but it's so ephemeral. And like, if you don't keep feeding that beast, the light gets turned off on you and the pain that comes from that. And I kind of think of Instagram in that same way, where like, as long as you're feeding it, you're getting all the accolades, all the likes, all the praise, all the like, you know, validation. But if you stop, it all goes away. Like in a second, it's about addiction. It's about female friendships. I mean, I love those toxic narcissists. I attract them. So, so yeah. And, and it just really pokes fun at New York. And if you're from New York, I think you'll recognize 
recognize a lot of people. How do you compare yourself to Maddie? So I think I am Maddie in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but I think Maddie is a bit more vulnerable than I ever kind of was at least like, you know, in regard to career and also like her dynamic with the husband, it's a little different from like, you know, mine with Jason. I'm personally somebody who's just like, I'm just a workforce. Like I could never just take time off to like do anything. I have to constantly be going. And I think Maddie is a little bit more lost about like who she is and what she wants to do. And while I've definitely been just as depressed as Maddie, I've never sort of lost sight of like what I want. And I'm sort of more of like a fake it till you make it type. Like I might not have ever been the greatest of anything, but I just (laughs) keep selling myself until somebody takes me. (laughs) But having that background in acting, yeah, you feel like that informs how you react. Oh yes. 100%. Yeah. That's because no no is never the final answer. You just have to keep going. You're like, I hear no 20 times a day. That means nothing to me. No, it's just a opening in the road. (laughs) Next up is your cookbook, Dictator Lunches. And I peeked in on the Instagram feed and oh my gosh, when I was growing up, it was like this aluminum rectangle that had Holly Hobby or Scooby-Doo peeling off at the sides. We were doing good if like our clammy peanut butter and jelly and our thermos didn't beat the hell out of that peanut butter and jelly. First of all, where do you even find lunch boxes like this? So the lunch boxes are from this company called Planet Box. So cool. It's sort of annoyingly expensive. This lunch box, just like the initial like to buy it. <laughs> I, was, I was really annoyed. But I've found that first of all, the lunch box I've had, I've used on two kids. I've had it for eight years. So like they never die. That's the other beauty about it. It's just stainless steel. I mean, I'll probably, you know, be in a nursing home eating out of this thing. <laughs> so that's kind of amazing. And what I love about that lunch box, just like, you know, as a sidebar is the compartments. I love it's such a like paint by numbers. Like you can make such beautiful things. It's not that deep. So you're not like having to stuff a thousand blueberries in something. I just love the way it looks. My plug for Planet Box. (laughs) Well, and you don't have the clammy PB and J getting crushed with that. No, I'll bet you could put that in the dishwasher can. Oh yeah. You put in the dishwasher. It doesn't smell exactly. I want something that I can just like wipe down at the end of the day. That stale lunchbox, especially if it gets left in the car over the weekend. (laughs) And all the plastic. I hate it. Yeah. 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 Tell us about the cookbook. So the cookbook is about 70 recipes. It's like dictators at dawn. Then there's like a ton of lunch ideas, dinner and desserts. And I do a lot of stuff that's like grain free and dairy free because I am like super health conscious with just like what I'm putting in my kids. Because honestly, when I do put other things in them, it backfires on me. Then I have to deal with them the rest of the day while they're like on a sugar high, ready to murder me. So yeah, I'm all about cutting out grain when I can cutting out dairy when I can. There isn't any red meat in the book. A bunch of different recipes. I do like a Korean japchae. I have like schnitzel. I have tacos. And I mean, just anything you can think of. But I definitely do like to push the envelope with the kids as much as I can get away with. They're eating all the vegetables. They're getting all the weird shit too. <laughs> but you know what? That's good. The only bad thing is when they're 16, 17, 18, and you order, you know, expensive sushi takeout, they want all the expensive sushi oh, yeah, takeout. That's the, but, problem. that's the problem. It's true. When you give them a good they're taste, they're not afraid of it. Later. Yeah. It's true. So where did the name dictator lunches come from? So my son Sid is the dictator. He is a dictator. He controls me. He tells me that he's the main character of this family. Yeah. So I'm living in sort of this autocratic household where I, I get a thumbs up or a thumbs down based on how much he enjoyed his lunch. 
So it's a very Julius Caesar. Like today's lunch was, hmm. <laughs> Whether I live or die. It's the funniest thing because like, I never really put much effort into dictator. It was just something I was doing for fun and I was putting it on my main Instagram. And eventually, I think I just felt like people were getting sick of seeing these lunches. So I thought I'll create this other account. And I'm telling you, like, it's the weirdest thing. I've done more press on dictator than anything I've ever tried to promote in my life. And it's all been weirdly incoming. I'm always shocked by it because it really just started off with me just around in my kitchen at night. Like I didn't think anyone would give it. But, you know, I think part of it has to do with the fact that I'm a mess. I'm not a great cook. This is just a sublimation of my own guilt as a working mom. I just want to like give them a movable feast in a way that they can take to school with them. And it's sort of my version of a handwritten note. It's really not high art or anything like that. Yeah, but food is love. My kids are grown and, and I'm not a, a gourmet. I'm an Italian cook. My husband laughs and says, recipes are recommendations for me. I love that. That's how I work. I don't yes. like to follow like the New York times recipes, they inspire me. And I kind of start out following yes. them, but yeah, I don't always do oh, you on that, but my kids even grown, it's like they can be staying here and they have a bad day and there's this meal put out and it's just this like, Oh, it's unspoken everything. gift. And it's, yes, and it it's comes love. back to you too. Totally. Yeah. So cool. I agree. You've gone from memoir to screenplay fiction and then a cookbook. So how did it work from a writing perspective? Well, the cookbook was so funny because like it took me four years to figure out how to write a novel. I mean, it was so hard and nobody wanted it during the pandemic. It was hard to sell. Everything about the journey with the novel has been hard. And that's why for me, it's it's my baby. I mean, this is the one that I bled for this damn book. So I have my heart and soul in the novel, the cookbook. I was like, what do I, how, how, I don't know how to write recipes. So I hired a recipe developer who helped me. She's like, this is one tablespoon. This is what you're doing, you know, and would write it out for me, the math of it all. And that was great. That was much more collaborative as well as, you know, I had a photographer and a food stylist and it was just a group activity. And then when I got to go in and you know, do what I do and write the words. It was just like so funny because the editor, I remember I sent it to her and I thought, oh, it's like halfway there. It's okay. And she wrote back, she's like, this is amazing. And I called my agent laughing. I said, it took me four years to hear that my novel was good enough. <laughs> Literally, I wrote this thing in like a month and she's like, it's great. Don't touch it. It was so much easier. It was so fun because of just me being me. I got to put in quotes from my kids, things they've said. It was just a fun, lighthearted, just easy experience. And it was so like cathartic and healing coming off of, you know, the grind that is writing a novel. It's interesting. We have a lot of newbie writers. Listen, I think it says something that you coming from your background, we assume, oh, she's written a novel. Somebody's going to pick it up in a heartbeat because she's already found success with her memoirs and she's on TV. It's interesting. Four years. It took me five years. Oh my God. Yes. Wait, no, for your people who are new writers and people who are just starting out, I have to just tell you, like you cannot put something in a drawer. Don't listen to anybody who says, put this in a drawer, redo it. Just keep redoing it. I submitted this book as city of lights, right? Nobody bought it. Literally every single house, including Doubleday, including St. Martin's, all the people that trusted me in the past said no to me. They said, no, we don't want it. I don't know if in a post-COVID world, this book doesn't read as tone deaf, you know, privileged white women in lower Manhattan. Nobody wanted this book. I pulled this book off the market, which you should never do. They say, don't ever do it. Pulled the submission, left the agent that submitted, went to a different agent, took it out again again, was being told, I don't know. I don't know. It's not ready. What I ended up doing, I said to one of my friends, I said, I have too much ego to self-publish. I can't, I can't do it. I want this in bookstores. 
It's all I care about. <laughs> so bad. But I literally sold this book to a Hollywood producer who had a book imprint. He's like, you know, if you want to take the gamble with us, it's not going to be as much money up front, but I guarantee you it will be worth it in the end. And I said, listen, if you can get this thing bound on bookshelves, it's all I care about. I don't even care now. It's not even about the money. It's about nothing. Mm -hmm. Just give me that hard copy. So I sold it to him. And because of that, I was able to instantly flip it, sell it to Sony as a show. I have Diablo Cody who's supervising me before the book's even out because nice. of, you know, going about it that way. But I'm telling you, like, you can't give up ever. I was not a straight A student. I was dyslexic. I still don't know how to spell. If you want it badly enough, you can have it. You just have to push. Never, never stop and never put it in a drawer, please. <laughs> <laughs> With you being dyslexic, I mean, obviously you had challenges, Oh, yes. I had visual dyslexia. My mom told me yesterday it was visual. Yes. I used to write numbers in letters, you know, backwards and upside down. And I had tutors all up and through like probably seventh or eighth grade and guidance counselors. You know, I, I mean, I was an okay student, but I think the thing about me and I think why like dyslexia is oftentimes somebody's superpower is because there's a resilience in you that you can't even describe. So I just have the hunger and the kind of the drive. And I think that's why I was able to go to a good college and why I was able to kind of like, I guess, uh, just, you know, keep pushing, keep, keep pushing. pushing. Exactly. Any books that you've been reading or that you are reading right now? I just read this book mouth to mouth, which I really loved. Did you read that? I haven't. Tell me about it. Oh, it's very interesting. Just like how it's set up because it's like these two people who knew each other in college, they meet up at an airport and the guy's like, Oh, what have you been up to? And this guy starts just telling him his story and you get deeper and deeper into it. And it's sort of a thriller in a way. I don't want to give anything away, but the ending is just like perfection. It's just fun. I love how it ended. It was so great. I love Grant Ginder. He has a new book out, but Honestly, We Meant Well is just like such a great book. And there's a scene in there I wish that I had written. I just read Rebecca Searle's new book, One Italian Summer, which I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. What else did I just read? So that's what I've been doing lately. Oh, I also uh, read the Katie Couric memoir. That was pretty killer. Actually, I listened to it because I interviewed her. So I wanted to listen to her. She did the audio. Amazing. I also highly recommend listening right. to her do it. It's really good. Got it on the list now. You obviously learned a lot between writing your first memoir and the second one, and then going on in these other genres, what were some of the things that you learned in terms of publishing besides having to wait for four years? Well, now I know everything about publishing. Like this book, <laughs> because I had to do everything with this book down to the cover shoot, every piece of it. I know way too much. Just algorithms. The whole thing is insane. Publishing is a weird world. And what publishers think people want to buy is so it's just like, it's very much a system. And I would say, if you're going to submit a book, make sure you hire an editor before you submit a novel. Don't send half done work in. It's crazy because, you know, when I sold the first two memoirs, it was basically like words on paper. I mean, I was like, I want to write a story about this. And then maybe I'll do this. And this is who I am, blah, blah, blah. Those were like pitches, but this, you think you have to turn in like an idea or like 50,000 words of kind of like where you're going with it. No, you have to turn in a polished book. It needs to be like fully done, ready to go on shelves. Because the truth that I've learned is that publishers don't actually want to do much. Sorry. They don't, they just want to like bind it. <laughs> so much has happened with the publishing houses 
folding into one another. Yep. And then, you know, we've got talked to the authors one minute, they have this editor who's bought their project. And yeah. then when it's time to really get into the revisions, that editor isn't there anymore. And sometimes they don't have the project either. The project. Oh, yeah. Has been I've dropped. had that happen as well. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. For someone who is just now thinking, okay, I might give this a shot. I'm going to sit down and see if I can write. What is your advice? I would say come up with a schedule and give yourself a deadline. Like it takes a while when I'm first starting off, but I want to have a thousand words a day. If you have that much time to give, you know, if you're doing a nine to five, I like to be churning out about a thousand words a day. And then I'll put on my calendar. Okay. I'm going to have 30,000 words by this date. 50,000 words by this date. And that sort of motivates me to keep going. I know people say, don't look back, just keep writing. I sometimes do look back just to make sure, because sometimes looking back informs where you're going in a way that you change what you want to do. I mean, with this book, I've written this book four different times. So just know whatever you have at first is going to suck, but you have to have it. You have to have it suck because otherwise you'll never be able to change it around enough to make it good. You'll never get there. It's like sculpting in a way. It's like, of course, it's going to look like shit. you've only spent like 500 hours on it. <laughs> so what does your writing day look like? I'm about to write the pilot for this book. So for me, I'll start off. I'm going to go away from my family because they hate seeing me when I'm like fully in this mode. I'll do nine to five. I'll write from nine to five and I'll stop and I'll eat and I'll like scroll Instagram. By the end of the day, I want to know like that I have taken a chunk out of it because honestly, having it over me stresses me out more than actually just doing it. Are you one of those people who outline or, you know, do you I'll kind of loosely plot it out? outline, but sometimes I feel like, and especially with fiction, I find that outlining helps, but you're going to change so much anyway. So just get out everything you can get out right away. City of Likes comes out. So City of Likes is out June 14th. To Gemini, then, like me. <laughs> and the cookbook comes out September 13th. Just in time for school. It's a Virgo. <laughs> That's my New York niece's birthday. So I'll oh, tell her. funny. Okay. Go get that cookbook. Yes. Thank you so much, Jenny. This has been Thank so you. nice to spend this time yes, with you. Yes, thanks. Such thoughtful questions. Loved this. This was so great. To learn more, visit JennyMolin.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.